Mr. Lazarenko was a very high-level political figure in Ukraine in the 1990s. He allegedly extorted a fortune of over $300 million from corrupt business dealings in Ukraine. There was just something on that one case where I thought, this guy's really bad. They knew that I was conducting interviews because I was talking to people. Of course, after I left, they would call that guy and go, oh, the FBI was here today. For weeks, I would start my car with my daughter not in my car. I would make sure that she was either up on the front porch or still in the house when I started the car. This was the type of individual that would put a car bomb. I'm here today, so I'm very happy to say that situation never happened. How old was your daughter at the time? Eight. I've had threats and people saying they know where my family is, know where my son goes to school and things like that. Whilst we were putting together this podcast, two kleptocracy experts and close friends of Deborah's were forced to flee their own countries due to the threat of retaliation against themselves and their families for exposing this type of corruption. One of them was brutally attacked in his own home by armed gunmen who threatened to kill him and his family. They skilled effects into my compound and then they tipped to round the house, went to the living room. I was fast asleep with my wife in my room, my kids and my sister-in-law were in their rooms. I just got the, the tap on the bed saying, Mr. Man, get up. They put my recording on the screen and broadcasted it on Russian embassy in London. So I'm very likely in the kill list of Putin and that I have to go abroad. Activists and investigators like Deborah are often killed, threatened, or held by security forces and police without ever being charged. Do you see the train coming? You can't unlock the car doors. Just at the last minute, the car moves and the driver just kind of says, message received. This could happen to you at any time. This is A Nation for Thieves. I'm Justin Shankaro, and in this podcast, we're exploring the corrupt underworld of kleptocracy with specialist and FBI veteran Deborah LaPravat. So how did you get involved in kleptocracy? Well, you know, I was on a surveillance squad working terrorism special ops and doing a lot of surveillance. And after two years of doing that, I, I wanted to work something else. And so I saw that there was this opening on a squad that did money laundering and asset recovery. And I didn't know a lot about it. One of my supervisors said, you don't want to go there. It's white collar crime. And I looked at him and I said, I sit in a car eight hours a day surveilling bad guys. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I want to, I'd like to try something else. I started out, I had my own cases. I would also come behind you as an agent, right? And you say, hey, Debbie, I have a guy that, you know, stole $40 million. I'm going after him, but would you help me go after the money? And so I'm like, yeah, you know, we would be a team. Uh, while you were uh, getting the evidence to go after this drug dealer and doing undercover buys or doing surveillance, I would go, hmm, $40 million. I wonder what he bought. Where does he live? What does he drive? The day you arrest him, I would seize their car. I seized his house. I restrained 20 of his bank accounts and I got his investment portfolio and I seized the gold he had hidden somewhere. 
or I, I backed his uh, $200,000 Maybach uh, or Bentley out of his garage. Then one day in 2003, I get a phone call from DOJ and I'd been seizing, uh, you know, millions of dollars worth of things from bad guys for a couple of years. And they said, Debbie, FBI in San Francisco has arrested Pavel Lazarenko. He's the former prime minister of Ukraine. They're prosecuting him for money laundering, interstate transportation of stolen property and some other things, but they only put $40 million in their criminal complaint. Would you go after his other $300 million? Hmm, that's bigger than all my other cases put together. Okay, yeah, uh, um, I'll help you. Pavlo Lazarenko was a Ukrainian politician who was appointed to the prime ministership in 1996. This story has it all. It's got political corruption, it's got intrigue, it's got somewhat unscrupulous government tactics. He was only in the job for around a year. Once in power, out of nowhere, he became a multimillionaire. I'm not an expert in Ukraine, so now I need to know more. So immediately, I reach out to Brian Earle. He was the FBI agent out of San Francisco who worked the criminal case while I went after Lazarenko's money. He would go home after a day of work and have dinner with his wife and family. And then at 10 o'clock at night, he'd go back out and he'd go dumpster diving. One of the people that moved money was extorted by Lazarenko and moved money for him was an individual named Peter Karachenko. Brian would go out every night after he tucked his family in and get the trash out of Peter Karachenko's dumpster, bring it back home, and the next day go through it all. Through that, he found receipts, he saw notes, he saw information of where money was being moved. He did it every night for like a year. Imagine going through somebody's trash every night after you've had dinner with your family just to try to find any kind of trace of money that was stolen from an entire country's population. <sighs> Talk about dedication. We tried to speak to Deborah's former partner in crime, Brian Earl, for this podcast, but the sensitive nature of his current job made that impossible. If you throw something away, then it's it's not your property anymore, right? Yeah, uh, once you put it in a dumpster, you have no expectation of privacy. Matter of fact, it's very interesting. If your trash is in a trash can next to your house, you have every expectation of privacy. It's still in your house, it's still at your property. The moment you put it out on the curb, Unless you're really good friends with your trash bin, you expect someone you don't know to pick it up. It's called a trash cover. And I've done dozens of trash covers throughout my career. What you would find is you drive down the street on trash day, you see what their trash bag looks like, the size of it. I'd go duplicate it, and then I'd go down the street and I'd switch bags. So if he looks out his window, he sees his bag there, but I took his bag. You know, once it's off the curtilage of your property, it's free game. Brian, he learned Russian for this case. Obviously, Peter Kirichenko and Lazarenko spoke in Russian, and a lot of the notes were in Cyrillic, written in Russian or Ukrainian. So I called Brian and I said, hey, look, I'm going after the other 300 million. Bring me up to speed on your case. What we found out is that Lazarenko was under President Kuchma in the 90s in Ukraine. He made three to $500 million through bribery and kickback schemes. Don't forget, he was only the prime minister for one year. That's a lot of money for just 12 months. Given that his salary at the time was a grand total of about 4,000 US dollars. 
It was kind of after the fall of the Soviet Union and, and businesses were getting privatized. So Lazarenko was in charge of the energy sector. And he would say, like, you know, Justin, if you were a company, I'd say, look, I'll make sure your company gets the contract to provide gas to this region, but I get 50% of all your profits. You're going to go some business or no business. I'm going with some business. I traced over $300 million through bank accounts all over the world from different businesses that were in that way extorted by Lazarenko. I started gathering my evidence. Okay, uh, where's the money today? What do we know about? Gosh, for the next so many years, I had to find out about each one of the schemes, how he got the money, learned to recognize a lot of names written in Cyrillic. The complexity, uh, I mean, the FBI, before I was on the squad, sent me to complex financial manipulation school because what I'm looking at are complex financial manipulations, right? Lazarenko was lining his own deep pockets, but his deals also meant that the Ukrainian government would use taxpayer money to repay the debts of his own companies. The payments were hidden through foreign bank accounts and were made in US dollar currency. The complexities of the schemes made them almost impossible to trace. It was called the Nikovi Farm Scheme. The Soviet Union's fallen. Nikovi Farm was a state-owned farm and it was starting to privatize. And it was a dairy farm, they had cattle. And so they're buying cows from Holland. What they were doing is they were inflating these invoices. So a cow, instead of costing $1,000, was costing $1,500 to $2,000. How in the heck would I know how much a cow costs, right? So I'm looking at invoices. We talked to the people in Holland, and what we found out is like, no, no, they were selling these cows at $1,000 a head, but the invoices were saying like $2,000 a head. This way, they could skim off $1,000 per cow. $14 million worth of money went from Nakovi Farm to Lazarenko. Holy cow! By my calculations, that's about 14,000 cows that Lazarenko used to embezzle money. And I thought I had beef with him before. Clearly, the man liked his steak. Manipulation of invoices is how they were diverting money from the Nakovi farm scheme. It's pretty smart. It's very intricate. Yeah. I, as you said, I would have no idea how much a cow costs. Yeah. 1500 seems reasonable, 2000 mm -hmm. But you actually were on the ground, or your counterparts were talking to the farmers in Holland and finding out exactly how much they sold them for. Exactly. So we had to contact the dairy producers out of the Netherlands and say, what's wrong with these invoices? And they're like, those don't match our invoices. Our invoices are the real invoices. And so then we could prove that there were inflated invoices. It's called trade-based money laundering. You're manipulating import and export records as a way to launder money. The word kleptocracy comes from kleptomania, right? Klepto. And kleptomania is like to steal with compulsion. You have to look at some of these people, whether in Lazarenko's case, they took three to five hundred million to, to people nowadays. In other cases that I had where people took five billion dollars. The quantity of money is just so ridiculous. You could live so incredibly well on a billion dollars. Why take five? Even 50 million is a huge number. Why take more than that? 
$50 million isn't a lot when you're buying an $80 million yacht. Or you buy an aircraft. Or you have three villas. How much is enough, right? A lot of people right. say it's always $1 more. So with kleptocrats, the definition is those individuals, those leaders who put their own monetary well-being over their people. We were really not sure what was going to happen. Is somebody going to attack us? Are we going to face physical violence? It felt very real. You would have to be extremely careful in terms of your normal daily routine because they're capable of doing anything. Somebody simply throw that into the house during night and blow it. And people were inside the house. The house was destroyed. There's a term called violent kleptocracy. And it's those people that use their military, their secret service, their security services against the civilian population. Ihab Alwazni, a well-known organizer in Iraq's anti-government protest movement. He was shot dead. Shukri Hanum. He was one of the highest-ranking officials to defect from the former Libyan regime. His body was found in the Danube River near the well-known neighborhood he called home. And I would guess if somebody, if a prime minister, a kleptocrat is stealing hundreds of millions or billions, they'll do anything to protect it. Yeah. So that can be very dangerous. People will go to great lengths when you're trying to take what they feel is their money. So in May of 1996, there was an individual named Alexander Mamat. He was shot dead at the center of his doorstep. I don't know if somebody rang the doorbell, but uh, his body was found shot on his doorstep. One of the other individuals, his name was Vladim Hetman, and he was 62. He was a member of the Ukrainian uh, exchange, money exchange. He was a respected banker, was found dead in his elevator in Kiev with a shot to the head and a shot to the stomach. It was back in 1996, there was an individual named Mr. Sherban, and he was a very, very successful businessman in Kiev and a competitor to some of the people that were paying Lazarenko kickbacks in the oil industry and other lucrative agricultural businesses. He's not paying Lazarenko. He's a business competitor to the business people who are paying Lazarenko. In uh, November 3rd, 1996, Mr. Sherban, his wife, they land on a private jet. They had just attended a wedding of a family member and they arrive at Kiev. Two men walk out onto the tarmac and start riddling the plane with bullets. Mr. Sherban and his wife and a maintenance uh, crew member were all killed. This is like out of a movie. So yeah. literally two guys come out of nowhere and just start Firing. shooting them? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is uh, post-Soviet Russia, right? I mean, it's Ukraine, but I mean, it's the former Soviet Union. So how do you tie it back to Lazarenko? There were people in the Ukraine after Lazarenko fled who started doing searches, doing investigations, like who was behind this. Debbie followed the money through a web of bank accounts controlled by Lazarenko to accounts belonging to the hitman. The prosecutors in Ukraine are saying that it was Lazarenko's money that paid for these hits. So why was he not prosecuted? The crime didn't occur here. So we're not charging somebody in the United States for a hit that occurred in Ukraine. One of Lazarenko's accomplices was a businessman named Peter Kirichenko. Lazarenko threatened and extorted Kirichenko 
and force him to hand over half of his profits. That's $30 million. Kirichenko then became Lazarenko's money mover. The FBI was interviewing Pyotr Kirichenko, and one of the stories that he told was it was either his daughter or someone in his office in Ukraine was with a driver. They stopped the car on the railroad tracks with the train coming. They moved before the train hit the car, but the person was locked in the back seat. They couldn't get out of the car. And it was just kind of a message, like you could be taken out at any time. That story stuck out of my mind because this was the tactics that were used. These are the kinds of things you do see on TV. I mean, imagine if you're Peter Kirichenko's daughter or one of the secretaries from his office and you're getting a ride someplace and all of a sudden the car stops on the railroad tracks, you see the train coming, you can't unblock the car doors. Just at the last minute, the car moves and the driver just kind of says, message received, you know, this could happen to you at any time. One of the companies linked to Lazarenko's hit was headed by a woman named Yulia Timoshenko, who would go on to become the first woman to be appointed to the Ukraine prime ministership twice. We don't know if she knew that the money that she was giving to Lazarenko was going to take out her competitor, or if Lazarenko did it as a, I'm protecting my investment. I don't know how much proof there is to show that Timoshenko knew the money she was giving Lazarenko ultimately was paying a hitman. I traced over $200 million of uh, payments from her companies to Lazarenko. When she was prime minister, the U.S. Embassy was like, oh my gosh, she's the voice of democracy, she's so great. And I'm like, excuse me, have you read my affidavit? She can afford to be. She made like three to $500 million under Lazarenko. The FBI agent was frustrated and the U.S. Embassy was like, oh no, she's great. Yulia Tymoshenko lost her bid for president of Ukraine in 2010 to Viktor Yanukovych. Yanukovych subsequently jailed her and she spent three years as a political prisoner. She was finally released in the aftermath of the Revolution of Dignity, a protest that erupted and eventually overthrew the Ukrainian government, forcing Yanukovych to flee. I was in Kiev 10 days after President Yanukovych fled. It's alleged that while President Yanukovych was also president of Ukraine, much after Lazarenko, he depleted the country of $40 billion. I literally consider it the rape of a country. It was probably Russian-backed. 68 people fled Ukraine when Yanukovych fled. They all fled to Russia. And then what happened? Crimea was invaded. When I arrived 10 days after Yanukovych fled, I walked in to meet with my Ukrainian counterparts. And I'm like, hi, you know, I'm Debbie, I'm with the FBI and we're here to help you. And he's like, we're being invaded, could you come back? Russia's lining up on our eastern border. Kleptocrats use their power and influence to manipulate allies and avoid detection. 
Lazarenko's millions moved through as many as 60 bank accounts and numerous shell corporations all over the world. Deborah's effort to track, trace, and seize his assets was monumental, and she couldn't do it from her little office in America. She had to get on a plane and go to each country. Ukraine, Lithuania, Switzerland, Latvia, and Antigua are all stamps in her passport collected while searching for this money. So I traced $15 million from a bank account called Supreme Banking Corp. If I told you Supreme Banking Corp, you'd think, well, that's a bank, right? No. Somebody flew into Nuaru, a little tiny island in the Pacific. It's a money laundering haven, right? They had 200, more than 250 banks that were later identified by the U.S. Treasury as money laundering hazards. So somebody walked in and incorporated this company, right, a briefcase company. It doesn't exist, there's no location, and it was called Supreme Banking Corp. Now I take that piece of paper that says I'm a bank, and I go to Privat Bank in Kiev. Is that a big bank? It was one of the largest banks in Ukraine. And I open a bank account in the name of Supreme Banking Corp. Well, to anybody who is just looking at bank records, it looks like Supreme Banking Corp is a bank account at a bank, right? Of course. Because, I mean, it's called correspondent banking. Union Bank of Switzerland in Switzerland has a bank account at, say, Wells Fargo, right? So they can do U.S. dollar transactions. So I see Supreme Banking Corp sending money from Privat Bank to Lazarenko. But to look at it, it looks like money was just moving through Privat Bank, but it wasn't. It was a bank account at Privat Bank. What I found out later is that Lazarenko was given like one-sixth of Privat Bank. And so it's very likely that this is the way Privat Bank was kicking back the money they had to pay Lazarenko for favorable conditions uh, for their bank. But I said, whose name is that one-sixth then? It was in the name of Leonard Gadiatsky, who was Lazarenko's driver and bodyguard. Six different people who had to pay Lazarenko. He gave 50% of their company to Leonard Gadiatsky. So it was never in Lazarenko's name, right? But Lazarenko got the money. You would think Leonard Gadiatsky was one of the richest people in Ukraine because he owned half of Peter Kirichenko's company. He owned one-sixth of Privat Bank. He was the person who was the nominee. Was the driver ever talked to? Did, was he involved in the scheme? What happened to him? He wasn't in the U.S., so we didn't go after him. And I don't know what he faced in Ukraine, but I'm sure he was investigated in Ukraine. I don't know if he was prosecuted. Lazarenko, through his associates, bought Eurofed Bank in Antigua. Myself and Dan Clayman flew to Antigua. Dan was the prosecutor? Yes. We had three days to go through all of the information. Why only three days? Uh, we probably had to be someplace else afterwards, right? I mean, it was a trip in route to maybe we were going back to Kiev from there, but we had three days in Antigua to go through a lot of records. Who purchased the bank? How many customers are at the bank? How much of the $100 million on deposit at Eurofed belonged to Lazarenko? It turned out that $85 million of the $100 million on deposit at that bank belonged to Pavel Lazarenko. 
We were at the investigator's office, and it was like a Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock, and I look over at the door, and the Antiguan investigators, they want to go home. I mean, what do you mean? It's 4 o'clock. In Antigua, that's time to go home. Really? Uh, yeah. And, so that's it? The uh, yeah. day's done at 4 o'clock? The day's o'clock? done. It's 4 o'clock Friday afternoon, and I look at Dan, and I'm like, you know, now it's 6, and the Antiguans are standing in the doorway ready to go home. So they're giving and you that look? They're getting that look. And Dan is purposefully not looking. <laughs> so he doesn't see that look. We got what we needed and we went through all those documents. The value of Eurofed Bank was they had $100 million on deposit, but you could not walk in to their branch in Antigua and have $100 million. I mean, it just wasn't there. The money wasn't kept in a vault in Antigua. It was kept on offshore accounts. And a great deal of that money was the money that was in Lithuania and other countries, but it was the property of Eurofed Bank. They had correspondent accounts where the money would sit safely in Lithuania or Liechtenstein or other places. When I seized and restrained all of Lazarenko's assets, that included the money that was sitting in the offshore accounts. That means $85 million of Eurofed's money suddenly became frozen and the bank went into liquidation. The whole bank's value was how much? 100 million and 85 million was Lazarenko's. So what happened to the other 15 million? That's the stuff nobody tells you about, right? So the bank went into liquidation. We had to identify every single bank customer at Eurofed. And that other 15 million belonged to people who might have $1,000 in the bank or a million dollars in the bank. Working with the liquidators, we identified all the other customers of the bank. We had to send them all notice that the accounts had been frozen and that they would get a prorated share of that 15 million back, but the other 85 million was seized because it was Lazarenko's. There's like horrible parts of this job, right? Where you see that money was paying a hitman. But then there's the funny part of this job. I'm going through your bank records and I see what the money was spent on. I'm going down the list and I see cosmetic surgery and I'm like, ooh, breast implants. You can keep those. <laughs> you know, I'm not seizing those, no. Uh, Have you seen that before? Absolutely. Or, you know, somebody was, uh, you know, went on a cruise. I can't get any of that money back. You can't get the uh, vacation back? can't get the vacation back. Uh, you're gambling in Vegas and you didn't do well. I'm not getting that money back. And you're a coke addict and you snorted, you know, I'm not getting that money back. So, you know, there's so much squandering of the money. And the reality is you're never going to get it all back. When he's indicted and he's prosecuted, how many years does he get? He was indicted on 59 counts. That's a lot. Yeah. The judge threw out like 20 of the counts. I'm like, excuse me? What are some of these counts? ITSP, Interstate Transportation of Stolen Property, that he stole money out of the Ukraine and that he, through machinations he moved it into the United States. So money laundering is a charge. Interstate Transportation of Stolen Property is a charge. Laundering the proceeds of extortion is a charge. And I would think these have, you know, at least probably five or 10 years tacked to each count. He was found guilty. The judge threw out more counts. And I think they gave him a downward departure for being a government official. What's that mean? A downward departure is lowering the sentence. 
Why would they lower the sentence? This guy is a kleptocrat. That is an excellent question to which I don't have an answer. And I mean, I was like, what? You gave him a downward departure for being a government servant. I'm like, but he was a corrupt government servant. So I, I really don't understand that decision. It wasn't anything I had control over. So how many years does he get? He served nine years in prison. He got out. We were going to extradite him back to Ukraine. And at the time, he claimed asylum, stating that if he went back to Ukraine, he would be murdered. Lazarenko's currently living in California. Hey, wait, he's here in our backyard? He's here in our backyard. We're harboring a kleptocrat in California. And we're just saying, okay, no big deal. You can go ahead and continue to live in California. This is absurd. He's a kleptocrat. He's a horrible person. I would be very interested to know why the United States has allowed him to stay in the United States. Perhaps when he first got out of prison, if Yanukovych was still in power at the time, there, maybe there was a legitimate statement that if we had returned him, he would have been murdered. Now you're talking, it's a decade later. So are you telling me that's still the case? That the current president of Ukraine can't secure his safety while he goes on trial for crimes against Ukraine? I'm sorry. We, we have people that sneak across our border into California and we send them back right away. This guy stole $500 million and he's just hanging out in California. No big deal. We're not sending him back home. Oh, he's married. He's got a new family here. That's outrageous. Yeah. You know, I was trying to provide evidence to immigration to say this is why this person should not, you know, remain in the United States. The individual from ICE, Immigration Control, uh, told me, he goes, I've been told to stand down. I don't know who told him to stand down and why. Could it possibly be the CIA? There's always the possibility that Lazarenko had uh, something to barter with. Maybe he had information against other targets within Russia. I don't know. When both President Bush and President Obama said the United States will never be a safe haven for kleptocrats or their money, I'd like to know who made the decision to let Lazarenko stay and what we got in exchange for that. If there was one thing that you specifically learned from that case, what would it be? One of the best ways to lotter money is to buy a bank, right? So for like 3.5 million, he bought Eurofed Bank in Antigua. We can't tell the bad guys like how to become kleptocrats, Debbie. That bank went into liquidation after I froze his assets. And it's not unique. We find in Congo, Suleimani, the brother of President Kabila, I think his sister owned 40% of BGFI Bank. His brother was like the vice president of the bank. I was investigating corruption in Kyrgyzstan and the Bakayev family owned a good portion of the bank, which means I couldn't guarantee that bank records that I would get from that bank hadn't been altered. Because they can manipulate them. They Absolutely. own the bank. They own the bank. What you will find, though, is that there's bank records for every transaction from a sending bank and a receiving bank. If they don't match, you've got a problem. How does kleptocracy affect us? These people are stashing billions in high-value property across the world. Home prices are now 5.4 times more than the median buyer's income. In New York and LA, it's nearly 10 times the median income. In New York, 
the stream of cash from foreign kleptocrats has caused the market to skyrocket. 50% of all new construction is listed for over $10 million. In the UK, more than $5.5 billion of property assets are used to hide dirty money. The reason you can't buy a house is because of people like Lazarenko hiding their money literally in your backyard. I'm looking right now at a photo of Lazarenko's mansion and this gigantic pool, which is a combination of several pools. In 2013, U.S. prosecutors seized a nine-bedroom, 19,500-square-foot California mansion and later a Picasso lithograph they said were illicit spoils of the office of Pavlo Lazarenko. They seized Lazarenko's mansion. While Lazarenko was in jail, some kids broke in and had quite the party at Lazarenko's empty mansion, and they stole that Picasso print. Once they stole it, they didn't know what to do with it, so they dumped it on the side of the road, and the police department picked it up, that and like some big marble urn. So they just dumped a Picasso on the side of the road? Yeah. First of all, they probably had no idea what its value was. They may not have also known that it was a signed Picasso print, which means it was still worth $30,000. I find out about the Picasso being picked up by the police, so I call the police and I'm like, look, I need to have it appraised, see what it's worth. And I said, but we have a judgment against Lazarenko. So the United States Attorney's Office in San Francisco sees that huge mansion. Put that into perspective, right? It's what, 19,500 square feet? My townhouse in the DC metro area was like 2,500 square feet. My whole townhouse would fit on each like three floors, three or four times. <laughs> My entire house, <laughs> three times on each floor. You were living large. I was living large, right? I had a three level townhouse. And he was pretty much in this house by himself most of the time. And it's again, 19,500 square feet. I didn't recover all of his money. There's 18 million right there that was transferred to the Seychelles that I have no idea where it went from there. I have no doubt that Mr. Lazarenko has a great deal of wealth, much of which I was never able to trace. I would say he's probably doing very well. I'm just looking at a photo of him. I think he's eating quite well. He's got a healthy gut, let's put it that way. He looks very happy and overweight. He just has a confident smirk on his face. I don't know, he just seems like a total schmuck to me. When he was uh, found guilty years ago, he had a press conference in which he said for Ukrainian radio that he was found innocent. And I'm like, no, he wasn't, he was found guilty. But who in Ukraine would know the difference, right? They hear on the radio uh, that he was acquitted in the United States. He wasn't acquitted, he was found guilty. If the only news you're getting in Kiev is that report, then you would think that Lazarenko was found not guilty. Next on A Nation for Thieves. 
When I first heard about President Abacha dying, the, the general consensus is that he died in a Viagra-fueled orgy with three Indian prostitutes. Hold on a sec. Can you say that one more time? A Nation for Thieves is narrated by myself, Justin Shankaro, with Deborah LaPravat. Produced by Charlie Webster and Jackson McLennan. Edited by Nicholas Palella. Music by Sean Hedinger. Executive producers, Charlie Webster, Justin Shankaro, Stephen Neely, and Deborah LaPravat. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group.